All right, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I just want to introduce um, Dr. Abusali, um, who has graciously agreed to give us a talk on pancreatitis today. Um, I assume we will have some more people trickle in, Dr. Abusali, but um, don't want to penalize those who made it on time. Um, Dr. Abusali is a uh, Washington Hospital Center um, uh, trauma surgeon and critical care doc, who is the APD for the general surgery uh, residency program over there, uh, and is going to speak today about pancreatitis. All right, thank you, and thanks for the invite. Um, let me see if I can share my screen. So, uh, okay, thanks again for inviting me. Um, there's a obviously a lot to cover about pancreatitis, so uh, I'll try and kind of, uh, you know, kind of summarize introduction of what it is, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about a few issues with the ICU care and who to admit to the ICU at least, and uh, and uh, how to manage these patients. Um, so, uh, you know, definition of acute pancreatitis is obviously an intestinal inflammation uh, and edema of the pancreatic tissue. Uh, as we all know, there's, uh, you know, two uh, different forms of pancreatitis, uh, uh, acute and chronic. Uh, you know, the chronic one, uh, you know, the most problems we're going to deal with in the ICU or anywhere is basically the chronic pain and, the, you know, inability to digest uh, anything with pancreatic uh, insufficiency. Uh, and so we won't talk much about it except for saying that it exists and, uh and having chronic pancreatitis doesn't rule you out from having acute pancreatitis on top of that. Uh, it's a problem, obviously, of uh, you know a chronic inflammation, fibrosis of the of the organ, and inability to secrete you know enzymes and uh, uh, to digest. And uh, the biggest issue again we face with is pain control. Um, and so, if you see somebody in the ICU, that's going to be the you know the the problem with them mostly is the pain control. Uh, as far as acute pancreatitis, uh, it's an inflammation and edema uh, of the pancreatic tissue, and then that leads to destruction. And we'll talk a little bit about the pathophysiology, uh, but that's the uh, basically um, uh, uh, you know biggest problem with it is the destruction of pancreatic tissue, release of the enzymes, and the you know uh, local and systemic effects of all this inflammation and destruction. Uh, the presentation is usually with abdominal pain. It's usually acute onset, severe, mostly epigastric, uh, and then uh, kind of radiates to the back most of the time. Uh, but then also you can have a, a you know right upper quadrant, left upper quadrant pain, depending on where the inflammation is. Uh, uh, you know, I won't go into a lot of kind of the details on uh, you know clinical findings that are interesting. That, uh, but I'm pretty sure you guys have heard of like you know the presentation of hemorrhagic pancreatitis with the skin changes and uh, you know necrotic fat nodules under the skin. Uh, the abdominal pain is uh, usually associated with nausea and vomiting. Um, uh, most patients will present uh, after a few days of experiencing that, so they're a little bit behind uh, to begin with. Um, and uh, diagnosis is usually by clinical findings uh, based on the abdominal exam and the amylase and lipase. Uh, the difference between those two is basically when one of them starts speaking and uh, versus the other, the amylase speaks first, uh, and then uh, usually kind of starts going down by day two or three. Uh, and so, if you get somebody who's uh, presented after you know five days of symptoms, their amylase might be normal. 
However, the live life phase uh, uh, lags the peak and then stays around for a longer period of time. Uh, the diagnosis is made by having a, uh, a serum amylase and lipase that are three times higher than the normal. Uh, and then again, we'll go over the, you know, uh, what kind of uh, uh, imaging and uh, modalities, but usually a CT scan is not required to make the diagnosis, but we'll talk about why it's important in case of severe pancreatitis, uh, what to do with that. Uh, the anatomy, I wanted to just kind of touch base on the anatomy because of uh, uh, important for two aspects, I think. Uh, first of all is uh, where the pancreas is located and uh, what kind of structures it affects around it that will kind of uh, determine what kind of complications the patient have. And then uh, uh, just because of the location of the pancreas, uh, it also kind of will dictate uh, how we manage these complications and uh, how they will present. So that being said, um, a couple of things I want to point out is, uh, you know, usually it's not as clear uh, showing up like this behind the, you know, this is the pancreas basically, and it does not show uh, like that basically in an operative field or, or, or any irregular person. Um, it will be covered by a, uh, 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 the omentum down here. The stomach will be kind of wrapped around it. There's going to be a lot of fat up top, and then the lesser omentum is going to be here covering everything. Um, it is a retroperitoneal structure, and so, uh, you know, the pain, again, usually that's why they have, you know, uh, back pain with it, and it's going to be mostly epigastric. And then again, the, the complications from pancreatitis, other than the organ itself, are related to the structures around it. So the stomach, the colon, the blood vessels that supply the pancreas itself and every other organ around it. Um, and then obviously the uh, the uh, cystic duct, the common bile duct, and uh, all you know empty within the duodenum. Um, uh, this is basically another picture that I just wanted to show with the stomach reflected up, showing the body of the pancreas. Uh, I want to just point out a couple of structures here: the splenic artery kind of runs along the border of the pancreas, and sometimes on the behind it, on the upper edge of it. Also, there's a lot of gastric arteries that are around it. Uh, and, and again, it's a very vascular structure. Also, a little bit uh, comes to play also is the present presence of the uh, uh, um, um, middle colic artery that runs right here off of the uh, SMA. Uh, and then basically the portal vein is behind us over here on this side, way behind the pancreas. And that's, again, plays a role. Uh, it's important just because of the complication that comes with the uh, uh, inflammation. Uh, if there's any questions, by the way, for anything, just please stop me and let me know. You guys all come to interrupt. Um, this is basically, again, just kind of a basic physiology. I'm sure you guys know that, but we'll just mention it, that uh, the, the, you know, the, the pancreas is a, uh, is a uh, exocrine and endocrine organ, uh, you know, it regulates, you know, uh, blood sugars, obviously, but also uh, for our purposes with acute pancreatitis, uh, the SNR cells will produce uh, uh, proteolytic enzymes or proenzymes, basically, that gets uh, activated when they hit the duodenum and meet the mucosal uh, wall of the uh, duodenum. Um, if they get activated here, there's some defense mechanism that the pancreas uh, deals with. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about uh, what happens when those get uh, overwhelmed or dysregulated. 
uh, again, uh, there's a lot of blood supply to the pancreas, which is good, but also could be bad with some complications that we'll talk about later. Uh, and again, just want to point out the proximity of all these structures around it. And again, keep that in mind when we uh, talk about uh, local complication of pancreatitis. And then, uh, uh, you know, approach to managing uh, uh, pancreatitis uh, surgically or endoscopically or uh, um, or with interventional radiology, or at least the complications from it. Okay, so acute pancreatitis, it's uh, been reported that it's, uh, you know, the most common uh, present, uh, abdominal uh, presentation to the hospital. Um, uh, about 15 to 25% will have a, a necrotizing component of the pancreatitis, meaning that the, uh, uh, because of the inflammation or various reasons, the part of the pancreas is not getting enough blood flow and it will literally die. 20% uh, of moderately severe to severe pancreatitis will have some organ dysfunction. Uh, that doesn't mean that it will uh, stay. Uh, they will stay with organ dysfunction for their hospitalization, but they will present with about 20% uh, of them will present with about with some form of organ dysfunction. Uh, overall, mortality in acute pancreatitis has been getting better. Um, uh, you know, from uh, like the late 90s till the early, uh, early 2010s, it's decreased quite significantly to now it's about 5% overall mortality for all incoming pancreatitis. That obviously increases a lot with uh, necrotizing pancreatitis, which kind of reach up to 17%. Um, what is the cause of their severe illness? Uh, it's in general, again, uh, local complications from the location of the pancreas around stomach uh, uh, duodenum, uh, colon, uh, and then the other systemic uh, uh, problems that happen is because of the inflammation and distributive hypovolemic shock that they present in it. And all patients with pancreatitis will present with some kind of hypovolemia or hypovolemic shock. Uh, so again, what is the etiology of acute pancreatitis? Uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's important for us to know uh, you know the different aspects of it because we will need to kind of at some point reverse the cause or at least manage the cause until uh, we can have the definitive treatment. Um, you know uh, the most common uh, uh, reason for pancreatitis, at least in the U.S., is gallstones. Uh, it's up to seventy percent of uh, patients with pancreatitis have some kind of gallbladder uh, disease and. Uh, 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 and stones, basically, the smaller the stone, the more likely the patient is going to develop uh, pancreatitis. Uh, the reason for this, basically, is uh, either stones, and so that uh, includes blockage of the common channel, uh, and then uh, which kind of leads to, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the pancreatic secretion is kind of backing up and getting activated uh, in the pancreas and then overwhelming the system. Uh, or basically reflux of bile into the pancreatic duct and causing a chemical reaction. The treatment for this is ERCP and eventually cholecystectomy. Uh, uh, the next reason I want to talk about, the next cause I want to is obviously ERCP. So uh, treatment of this, you know, as it puts the patient at risk for pancreatitis, uh, it depends on the, uh, 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 you know, the, the ERCP causing uh, pancreatitis uh, depends on uh, uh, obviously, the, the experience of the proceduralist, uh, why they're doing the procedure, and what procedure are they doing? Is it for uh, diagnostic purposes? Then the likelihood of pancreatitis is in the low, uh, you know, single digits. If it's a uh, therapeutic uh, uh, ERCP, meaning that they're going to 
you know, uh, put a stent through the pancreatic duct or anything like that, uh, then that would uh, increase the chances of pancreatitis to about 25%. Um, in our institution here, and I think in our system, the rate of pancreatitis from ERCP is pretty low. Uh, and I think that's just because of the volume that we have for these patients and for the proceduralist. Uh, when do we do uh, ERCP on patients with gallstones? Usually, you know, if they're in the ICU um, and they have pancreatitis only, uh, most uh, doctors will probably be comfortable with waiting for them till their symptoms get better and then evaluate if they need a, uh, a procedure. If they have a pancreatitis with some kind of a cholangitis or they're in septic shock, then I think that kind of pushes us pushes us more to kind of get that intervention done so we can clear the ducts and uh, kind of uh, uh, help alleviate the septic shock. Um, the cholecystectomy is the uh, you know the uh, ultimate kind of goal of uh, the management because you take out the reason why they have stone or or you know and then that prevents it from recurring. What we quote for patients is uh, uh, that recurrent pancreatitis after gallstone pancreatitis is about 20% uh, lifetime, which is pretty high. Uh, and so our recommendation usually is to take out the gallbladder when the pancreatitis has uh, gotten better within the acute phase. And if they have any complication from pancreatitis like pseudocysts or ascites, then that kind of pushes us to wait a little bit longer just because of the risk of uh, complications from surgery is high and the chances of us, you know, uh, worsening their pancreatitis is high if they have complications from pancreatitis. Uh, the next most common cause in the U.S. for acute pancreatitis is alcohol use. Um, most of it is from chronic alcohol use. Uh, there's really no um, uh, underlying mechanism that's understood why uh, at a certain point what was not causing problem for the patient from their pancreas causes it all of a sudden after, you know, five, six years of drinking. Uh, maybe it's hypersecretion of enzymes that is generated by the alcohol use, but nobody really knows. Um, hypertriglyceridemia, uh, usually it's in the range of a thousand milligram per deciliter usually, and it's really pretty rare. Same thing with hypercalcemia. Uh, meds, I wanted to point out because it's really rare and it's self-limiting uh, as long as we stop the inciting agent, uh, but there's a lot of meds that cause it, and it's an important thing to consider in the ICU if all of a sudden your patient has pancreatitis and you can't really pinpoint something that causes it, like a stone from the uh, you know gallbladder or uh, anything like that, um, so just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, it's always reported that, you know, pancreatic injury causes, uh, you know, pancreatitis. Uh, you know, it's kind of debatable if we look at pancreatic injury causing pancreatitis, like the classical acute pancreatitis we see, it's usually a disruption of the pancreatic duct uh, that causes elevated, uh, 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 you know, uh, amylase and lipase, obviously, uh, but but they don't act as sick as the systemic patients just from the pancreatitis. It's usually other things that are injured at the same time with the shock and all that that causes their illness. But, you know, if you have a trauma that has a pancreatic injury, then probably they need to get investigated. And then anatomical anomalies like uh, pancreatic divism or uh, any kind of cysts off of the pancreatic duct or at the ampulla causes some obstruction and some pancreatitis. Uh, so what happens 
uh, you know, after the uh, uh, original inciting event, either alcohol use or blockage or uh, reflux, uh, the uh, uh, proteolytic enzymes will get activated in the body of the pancreas. And, uh, and usually those are, they have, the pancreas has some defense mechanism and self-regulatory mechanism that uh, uh, controls the activated enzymes and kind of manages them. Uh, but when there's a big, uh, you know, uh, uh, amount of proteolytic enzymes are getting activated, or if uh, the, the pancreas is injured or ischemic for some reason, that overwhelms usually the defense mechanism. Um, and then the release of the trypsinogen and activation to trypsin will kind of lead to destruction of cells that releases more. And it's kind of a vicious circle that kind of causes autodigestion and more release of the active enzymes. Um, on top of that, you have a vascular injury because of the uh, edema and the uh, inflammation that causes microthrombosis, that causes ischemia, that worsens the cellular damage, and then the capillary leak around the microvasculature causes more edema, and then you have this, uh, this potential ischemia reperfusion injury of the organ that causes more and more damage and more inflammation, more swelling, and again, it's a vicious circle. At a systemic level, um, uh, this causes a release of pro-inflammatory pro cytokines that causes the ARDS, the renal failure on top of the, you know, the shock, uh, and causes like basically leaky vessels everywhere in the body. Um, there's been a lot of grading uh, systems for, uh, uh, you know, deciding if this is acute, you know, acute severe or moderately severe, and predicting outcomes. Um, you know, ever since Ransom's criteria started, and now we use more fancy kind of uh, and uh, 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 grading system and scoring systems. It's important for us to, uh, uh, you know, kind of grade pancreatitis or assess if it's uh, severe or not, uh, just to kind of make a decision about what level of care the patient needs. Um, now, you know, is that, you know, if the patient's uh, whatever Ranson criteria or whatever you want to use uh, is low, but the patient has heart failure and other system, are we going to leave them in the floor? Probably not, but it just helps us for basically uh, uh, trying to triage those patients where they go. It definitely helps if we are interested in doing research as far as pancreatitis, because, uh, you know, grading those uh, injuries are probably very necessary to do a, a adequate uh, research project or any intervention you do. Um, and then you set expectations for the family and the patient. You know, if they come in with an Apache score that's horrible, then you know what to tell them. If they're, uh, they have a lot of organ failure on top of the pancreatitis, you know what to kind of make them expect. Uh, uh, so, uh, and then again, you're, you know, we don't talk much about it, but resource allocation, uh, you know, who is gonna take that, you know, ICU bed, the one you have only one left in the hospital, uh, you know, those are all this, you know, decisions that we have to make, unfortunately, more and more now these days. And then, you know, as, as far as like uh, grading, we'll talk about different forms of grading, but some of the grading will help you when deciding, you know, are you going to call IR, are you going to call GI, are you going to call surgeries to come and evaluate the patient um, based on, you know, what kind of uh, disease process they have. So the classification in general depends on the severity. Uh, mild acute pancreatitis is um, is basically a uh, uh, absence of any organ failure, and uh, there's no local or systemic uh, complications of the patient. 
So just elevated uh, lipase, uh, um, abdominal pain, then that's usually you know, a mild form of pancreatitis. And I think most of those will kind of you know, admit to the floor, get some IV fluid being controlling and get them out hopefully. The moderately severe acute pancreatitis uh, basically is uh, in patients who have a transient organ failure, which resolves within 48 hours, uh, and a local or systemic complication that does not kind of, uh, again, the organ failure kind of goes away after 48 hours. Uh, so, uh, you know, those patients are going to need a little bit more attention. So IMC, and we'll talk about, you know, how what most patients with acute pancreatitis will require. Uh, but those patients are going to be a little bit more uh, tricky than any of the, you know, the mild or the severe because you need to monitor them and you don't want to take an ICU bed. So those are the ones that are going to be a challenge because you need to make sure they're getting better. But again, they don't, they might not, you know, meet criteria for ICU admission. The severe acute pancreatitis basically are the patients with the persistent organ failure uh, that might involve one or multiple organs. Again, it could be AKI, could be respiratory failure, could be cardiomyopathy, could be altered mental status, all of those things. Um, the revised Atlanta classification uh, 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 depend on imaging and uh, pres presence of necrotic tissue or not, uh, presence of uh, uh, fluid collection or not around the pancreas. And so, in most patients, that's not going to come in play because most of them are going to be mild and you might not want to get a CT scan on those if they get better after a couple liters of fluids. But once you get to the point where you're wondering if they're going to get better and need ICU scan, uh, ICU stay, I think that comes in play. Uh, I just put up the ransom criteria here uh, because uh, every single uh, test I've taken for medical school or residency or fellowship, they had it on there and you had to memorize it. Even though now we don't think that it's usually uh, uh, very helpful because it actually does not uh, predict severity and does not predict need for ICU stay. Uh, but, you know, just looking at the numbers themselves, you can say, you know, these patients are going to die, these patients or have a higher likelihood of dying or not but you don't know how they're gonna go once you get the ransom criteria, even at 48 hours. So it's not really very helpful to uh, uh, decide uh, where you're gonna put that patient once you see it, unless you know they don't get better, which you're gonna do that anyway. So again, not sure what the benefit of this, which brings us to all of the other, uh, unfortunately, uh, grading systems or scoring systems for acute pancreatitis which suffer from the same problem, basically. It tells you how, patient, how sick the patient is, uh, but it's not gonna predict very well, uh, uh, you know, what's gonna happen in the next 24 hours. Uh, the best ones to do that are the Apache 2 score, you know, SOFA score and SIR score, uh, but those are just generalized, you know, organ failure and ICU admission and illness. So it's not specific to the pancreatitis. Uh, the BICEP score is just the bedside, uh, basically assessment of the inpatient assessment of the acute pancreatitis. It relies on BUN, altered mental status, SIRS, age, and pleural effusions. Again, it's a good marker of how sick the patient is, but it's not specific for pancreatitis. And so does somebody who meet those criteria goes to the ICU? Sure, but you know we don't know how they're going to do the next 24, 48 hours. Uh, the harmless acute pancreatitis score is basically designed to say who has pancreatitis that's not really that very severe, 
So if they don't have peritonitis or gardening on abdominal exam, that's good. If they have a normal hematocrit, that's good. And if they have a normal creatinine, that's good. You know, again, you know, is that gonna, uh, you know, are you gonna ignore that patient who has like a lactate of two or four or five with these, you know, uh, findings? Probably not. Uh, but again, it's just kind of a guide to kind of tell you how sick the patient is. And the Baltazar score basically is a uh, is a scoring system based on CT findings of necrosis, fluid collections, and inflammation. So, I mentioned all of these just to kind of say that you know the general the best you know uh, 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 scoring systems for uh, for acute person, uh, pancreatitis are the best scoring systems for ICU. And again, it give it gives you good um, measuring if you're doing research if you're publishing. Or if you're an administrator looking at how good your outcomes are, but you know if somebody's an organ failure, you're going to get into the ICU no matter what the you know underlying etiology is. Um, uh, and again, uh, these scoring systems are not very specific to pancreatitis. The ones that are specific to pancreatitis don't give you an idea of like how sick the patient overall is because again, there's no organ failure here except for maybe like altered mental status. Same thing here, the, you have no idea what their organ failures or not are doing. Um, so do we admit to the ICU or not? I think it depends on, you know, uh, what your hospital allows. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody on this phone call is the same. We have patients, you know, intubated, boarding in the, ICU, in the ED. Uh, we're running pressers sometimes on the floor uh, until we open a bed somewhere that the patient can come. Uh, other hospital will not do that. And so if you have, if you're like 60 and you have, you know, some simple acute pancreatitis, you might get admitted to the ICU just for monitoring just because the floor can't handle it. Obviously, any organ failure is going to buy you an ICU stay, hopefully. Um, and again, I'm, you know, again, the, the scoring system has not been shown to be 100% reliable in terms of predicting the need for ICU or for predicting the clinical deterioration from pancreatitis itself. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about the management and, uh, we're going to, you know, divide it into these, uh, subjects, um, IV fluid management, pain control, antibiotics, nutritional support and management of complications and organ support. The organ support, uh, aspect is, is easy. You know, if they have ARDS, respiratory failure, then they need to be intubated. Acute kidney injury needs to be supported. If they need dialysis, they need dialysis and uh, uh, cardiac complications basically are mostly from uh, chronic disease on top of like the inflammatory state and they just need some kind of support and blood pressure support if they are in septic or vasodilatory shock or hypovolemic shock. So we'll start a little bit about fluid resuscitations um, and I'll, I'll just throw it out there. Every single patient with pancreatitis needs, uh, is, comes in with hypovolemia and they will need fluid resuscitation. Um, and that's because they've been vomiting for a few days, uh, they haven't been able to take any PO, uh, and again, they don't show up usually uh, right at the symptom start. Um, and then again, because of the inflammation around the pancreas, there's a lot of sequestration in the retroperitoneum, um, and uh, whatever fluid they give them, you know, a bunch of it is going to go to the organ and to other areas, and then you need to make sure that you resuscitate them or resuscitate their intravascular volume. Uh, when we do that, uh, we reverse the pancreatic hypoperfusion. You obviously improve blood flow to and oxygen delivery to other organs. So you blunt the 
or delay the effect of uh, mortal system organ failure. Uh, there's been a few studies that looked at uh, how much uh, volume to give and what are the markers for us to kind of base our volume resuscitation on. Uh, so I'll just come out and say that, you know, there's a, you know, some reasonable study that's, you know, looked at uh, these two, you know, hemoglobin and BUN. And if you don't have a decrease in those, then, uh, <coughs> sorry, then uh, within 24 hours, then the outcome is worse. Either, you know, the, the hemoconcentration study looked at pancreatic necrosis. And if you don't, you know, improve their hemoconcentration within 24 hours, they, those patients will develop more uh, pancreatic necrosis. And for the BUN, it looked at mortality. Um, again, does that help us, you know, knowing how much volume to give and what to give and, you know, are those patients sick to begin with? No, but those are kind of things to look for in the first 24 hours. Those are the patients that are going to do worse. Bring us to the next question, which, you know, how much volume to give, how fast and what to use. Uh, there was one study uh, recently that looked at, uh, uh, they had patients basically that, gave, that got the aggressive volume resuscitation versus normal volume resuscitation. And their aggressive volume resuscitation was giving a 20 cc's per kg bolus and followed by three cc's per kilogram per hour IV fluids for the first 48 hours. They didn't just leave them on, they kind of did a reassessment at uh, like two, four, uh, 12 hours, continuously through 48 hours, and then adjusted the fluid based on uh, what they need, mostly down. Uh, but in those patients that got this, you know, a big volume resuscitating to begin with, they noticed that uh, what they described as fluid overload was more common in these patients. And these patients did not get better outcomes than. Uh, uh, than the ones that had the lower resuscitation uh, uh, volumes, which were like 10 cc's per kg and 1 to 1.5 cc per kilogram per hour. Their, uh, their fluid overload parameters were pulmonary edema, respiratory failure, and edema on exam. So a little bit vague, but again, they noticed that if we overshoot with the volume resuscitation, then... Uh, uh, then, you know, that doesn't really help the outcome, but kind of causes problems down the road. So most of the recommendations now are to start uh, with moderate hydration, you know, usually 10 cc's per kg bolus to begin with, and then start some kind of fluid at 1.5 cc per kg per hour, and then follow these markers that we used about, you know, BUN, hematocrit, in addition to whatever you have in your hospital or whatever you feel comfortable to assess intravascular volume. That is obviously an echo. Uh, you know, if you believe in uh, in flow track, flow track. If you know, if you have you throw PA catheters, catheters into everybody, which I hope you don't, then use that. But just some kind of a marker in trivascular volume, and basically check your output, uh, lab lactate clearance, and all that stuff. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, urine output becomes tricky if the patient comes in with an AKI. Uh, some of them will get better, some of them won't get better right away, and then the question is, you're not put a reflection of intravascular volume, or is it the kidney that's damaged that's not making any urine? And again, uh, we're not going to go into how to assess intravascular volume here, because that's another, like, one year of lectures and teaching, but that's the principle with this. So uh, what do we use? LR versus normal saline. Uh, you know, there's some studies, again, that now more likely that in any fluid resuscitation, we prefer LR versus normal saline because of 
various factors. Uh, there, you know, there has been some weak studies looking at acute pancreatitis only, but I think, uh, again, I would use your common sense about, uh, uh, you know, based on your electrolyte abnormality, if they're hyponatremic, use normal saline, if, you know, they have hypercalcemia, basically don't use LR maybe because they have, it has a bigger calcium uh, count in it. Um, but in general, uh, you know, albumin, like anything else, has not been proven to be any better unless they have some kind of uh, liver failure and then obviously no head of starch or anything like that. So again, the choice of fluid resuscitation um, just applies to any kind of resuscitation patient in the ICU. And then again, uh, uh, the, the goal is to resuscitate those patients uh, quickly and uh, within 48 hours. And then once you hit that 48 hour mark, then kind of reassess, you know, your goals of, you know, IV fluid. If you still volume, if, it, if you still like your markers of, uh, you know, urine output are not well, then probably time to cut back on the IV fluid just because, you know, it's, uh, it's probably not gonna do anything at that point and you might have some problem down the road with it. Uh, pitfalls uh, for fluid resuscitations are, uh, uh, presence of CHF and end-stage renal disease. And I say that because, not because we overdo it with those patients, but we because we under-resuscitate those patients all the time. Uh, at least as soon as they get to the ICU, we notice that they've been in the hospital for a couple of days. And we've been kind of very ginger with our IV fluid because we're worried, you know, obviously for, for their urine, they don't make any urine and they were worried about the respiratory status and cardiac stress and all stretching and all that. Uh, but those are most commonly the patients that come in under-resuscitated uh, to the ICU. Uh, and again, that kind of uh, prompts the, you know, the, the more uh, vigorous uh, resuscitation maybe, but also more kind of watching them and getting better monitoring on them of some sort. Uh, and then, you know, abdominal compartment syndrome is another pitfall of over-resuscitating them. Uh, we have you know, um, as a surgeon, I have not seen abdominal compartment syndrome in a while. Uh, uh, at least we see it, but we, it's not as common as before. And again, that's because we're more judicious with our IV fluid resuscitation, but it is acute pancreatitis is one of the risk factors for developing an abdominal compartment syndrome. Uh, pain control, uh, you know, again, uh, all patients will present with abdominal pain uh, to the hospital with acute pancreatitis. Uh, you know, giving them IV fluids and uh, and fixing their shock is going to help with their pain. Uh, oops, sorry, uh, um, uh, reversing the ischemia is going to help with the pain management. Uh, but at some point, they will need some kind of narcotics or some kind of uh, 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 meds for pain control. Uh, when I was in residency, I was taught never to give morphine to anybody with uh, uh, with you know. Uh, cholangitis or any obstructive biliary disease or pancreatitis because of the risk of, you know, sphincter of OD increasing pressure and uh, and uh, causing worsening symptoms, but that has not been clinically proven and uh, no really clinical significance have been shown with morphine. So whatever works for the patient, uh, you know, uh, give it, manage their pain because they're not going to get better if they have, if they're in a lot of pain. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, trying to use multimodal pain therapy, uh, but at some point they will need some kind of uh, uh, narcotics, most of them. Uh, nutritional support, like anybody in the ICU, is extremely very important and nobody's going to get any better without any nutritional support. Uh, uh, 
what do we pick? You know, internal nutrition is obviously the best option to begin with and uh, should be attempted in any patient. Um, when to start it? Uh, we've kind of agreed that, you know, starting immediate uh, internal nutrition on everybody that comes to the ICU might not have a lot of benefit to it, but we don't want to delay too much. And so, um, and I'm saying that because, you know, if you're going to drop an NG tube in somebody and start feeding them as soon as they get to the ICU because, you know, they have an AKI and they're, you know, uh, have an altered mental status, uh, you know, just putting that NG tube has some risk to it. And maybe if we wait 24 hours and resuscitate them and their mental status gets better, then we can avoid putting an NG tube and they can eat. That's the only purpose to do that. Uh, uh, feeding the uh, uh, patient with pancreatitis. Uh, has not been shown to make pancreatitis worse. Uh, <clears throat> the thought again before was that it will uh, activate enzyme secretions that will make the pancreatitis worse, but that has not bore out with a lot of studies done. Uh, the, uh, the most common complications with enteric nutrition, either oral or through NG tube, is basically the inflammation of the retroperitoneal organ, the organ that is sitting around the stomach and the duodenum and the colon, causes an ileus versus a pseudo obstruction and patients can't tolerate their tube feeds and they uh, have worse pain and they uh, start vomiting. Uh, so that's usually the limiting factor for uh, enteric nutrition. So again, uh, it's probably okay to wait 24 hours, resuscitate the patient, see how they're doing and then start uh, you know, nutrition uh, on them. If you know, they're on like 20 of norepi and basal and the butamine and something else, then, you know, maybe we can wait a little bit longer just because of, again, it's not been uh, proven, but, you know, stress on the uh, GI tract with nutrition and high pressure requirements is a little bit iffy uh, in most places. Um, uh, so uh, the next question is, you know, should we start everybody on parenteral nutrition? Obviously, everybody knows by now that the answer is no. Uh, internal nutrition alone improves outcomes in most patients that can get that can tolerate it. Uh, there have been some studies that uh, looked at uh, supplementing enteral nutrition with parenteral nutrition, either early or late. Uh, uh, both of both of those kind of um, uh, options don't do any any good, and then kind of uh, uh, worsens the outcomes basically because of complications. Uh, internal nutrition is good because in, it uh, maintains the interstitial uh, intestinal barrier, uh, prevents translocation of, uh, of bacteria. Uh, it helps actually uh, with the ileus resolution and, uh, and uh, return of GI function. And again, um, everything has complications to it. Having an NG tube or putting a Dobhoff has some complications in it, but usually they're less severe than the complications from parental nutrition with uh, uh, line infections and other complications. Um, you know, early versus late. Again, like I said, probably we don't need to, you know, just drop an NG tube in everybody or a DOPHOP and start nutrition on them as soon as they hit the ICU. The earlier, the better. But I think you have 24, 48 hours, up to 72 hours to kind of uh, 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 resuscitate them and, and start, you know, tube feeds. Uh, what route to pick? Uh, oral is great if they're not intubated and they can maintain their airway and they can tolerate it. And G-tube is the next best option. And then if they cannot tolerate NG-tube feeds because again, the, the local inflammation and the 
some gastroparesis because of the pancreatitis, uh, then a post-pyloric tube would probably be reasonable too. Um, and again, you can keep trying these things for the first 72 hours. Uh, if patient can't tolerate the first day, then you know, start it again. And then up to 72 hours, it's probably reasonable to keep stuck, keep attempting. Um, what kind of formulas to use? Um, I don't think, you know, the common sense would say you use something with low fat and semi-elemental for digestion. Uh, but, you know, it depends on what you have in the hospital and uh, some caloric intake and protein intake is probably better than nothing. Um, so, you know, what are the uh, things that are going to make you stop uh, nutrition, nutrition in these patients? Uh, high residuals that they can't tolerate it, uh, increased pain when you start tube feeds uh, or severe distension. And again, those are all signs of some kind of an ileus that hasn't resolved or some kind of a pseudo obstruction. And we need to kind of step back and think about parenteral nutrition. Um, and again, the other thing that we have to think about is that if you give them some kind of nutritional support and they start having a lot of diarrhea, then we kind of need to reassess and think about uh, changing the formula just to kind of make sure that they're, uh, we're not causing the diarrhea. Uh, the parenteral route, uh, again, it's less preferred, keep as a last resort. It does increase mortality, but not clear if it's because the patient is sick to begin with or because of their problems with the TPN. Uh, and again, like I said before, there's no role for supplemental parenteral nutrition if they are tol tolerating uh, um, their uh, enteric uh, route nutrition. Um, any questions about nutrition or anything that I've said before? Okay, we'll move on to antibiotics. Uh, you know, no matter how, how sick the patients come in with pancreatitis, there is no role for prophylactic antibiotic in acute pancreatitis just for the pancreatitis. Uh, think about that 20% of them will develop some kind of an infection outside of the pancreas, and that includes a pneumonia, that includes bloodstream infections, other kind of infections. And they will stay in their ICU for a long, long time if they come to the ICU and the hospital. And so you want to save those antibiotics for when you really need them. And somebody with acute pancreatitis who is sick, unless you have evidence of pancreatic infection on CT or infected pancreatic necrosis, then the teaching is not to give them any antibiotics at all. It is most of the time a chemical inflammation reaction uh, that leads to all the problem and not an infection. Uh, management of, of the uh, complications and organ failure. Again, uh, like I said before, uh, the reason uh, why I showed the anatomy at the beginning is that the local complications are mostly due to where the uh, pancreas is and the surrounding structures. Uh, and so uh, we'll talk about those a little bit more in detail. Uh, the systemic effects of uh, pancreatitis are due to the pro-inflammatory cytokines that are released uh, and the shock basically that they come in with or that gets persisted because of how severe their pancreatitis is or because they have something dead or something like that. Uh, <coughs> those are AKIs, you know, um, uh, in requiring, you know, CRT sometimes, ARDS requiring intubation, cardiac insufficiency, uh, altered mental state. Uh, obviously, the the management of those uh, depends on what's causing them and, you know, and depends on your routine and how you do it. It's nothing specific to the pancreatitis, but 
those will happen quite frequently in severe pancreatitis. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, the local complications we'll talk about are, uh, uh, again, uh, based on the you know, anatomy we showed yesterday that pancreas has a lot of blood supply to it. Um, the splenic artery runs right behind the pancreas or right on top of the pancreas. And, you know, the enzymes there will eat at that vessel and causes pseudoaneurysms. Uh, gastric arteries are around there too. Epiploic arteries are around there too. Um, and so those all have their risk of basically developing pseudoaneurysm and developing into a hemorrhagic pancreatitis or some massive bleed from the pancreatitis. Um, those are patients that if you can resuscitate and get to IR, they will do a lot better than, uh, you know, us taking them to the OR and trying to, you know, dissect in a, in a bath of like dead tissue and trying to find an artery to clip. Uh, they will do really well with IR embolization. Um, pancreatic, and uh, one more complication that I wanted to talk about uh, in patients who are uh, blood vessel is basically uh, the metal colic artery uh, that supplies the transverse colon is very intimately involved with the pancreas uh, and just kind of runs, you know, under it and goes there. So uh, with severe inflammation of the pancreas, sometimes that artery kind of gets obstructed and causes uh, ischemia of the, of the, uh, of the colon. Uh, it doesn't happen as uh, you know frequently, but it is a known complication of the pancreatitis. And in those patients that uh, you know you're doing all the right thing, you're resuscitating them, you have them, you know, you have their you know uh, uh, infected pancreatic necrosis drained, and you have them on appropriate antibiotics, and they're still getting sick and getting sicker. Uh, that's something you know. Those, you know, those are the patients we'll talk about in a little bit that might require an exploration just to kind of see, make sure there's nothing dead. And sometimes it's the transverse colon that's dead. And uh, those patients don't do great, but uh, you know, if you take out the, that tissue, then maybe they'll have a chance of recovering. Uh, pancreatic fluid collections happen a lot in pancreatitis. Most of them will resolve spontaneously. Um, uh, if they don't, then they form a pseudocyst. Uh, both these entities uh, are, do not need kind of emergency you know, intervention unless you're suspecting some infection, uh, and most of them will cause, uh, you know, at least the pseudocyst will cause some local, you know, uh, uh, effects on the stomach or the duodenum or the colon based on where it is. Um, and those can be managed endoscopically at some time once the patient recovers from everything. Uh, again, the only time we would intervene on those in the ICU if there's any suspicion of, uh, of, inf of infection in that uh, fluid. Uh, so brings me to pancreatic debridement, uh, which uh, basically um, has changed a lot since I was a resident. Uh, um, you know, if a patient is sick, we used to take him to the OR and kind of uh, try to save them by debriding the tissue. If anybody's been involved in that, that is the most miserable operation on the surgeon and on the patient too. Uh, you can't tell what's dead, what's inflamed. You don't know what you're kind of picking at. It's, it's really an awful operation. And, you know, you have, uh, you, have uh, you know, depending on where the inflammation and necrosis is, you have a splenic artery and a splenic vein, and you have, you know, the, the mesenteric vessels hanging around there, and it's just kind of a miserable operation. Uh, so 
now what we do is we delay intervention as much as we can uh, just to allow uh, the uh, necrosis and the death to kind of demarcate and become very obvious when we go into the OR. And that includes in, uh, in necrotizing pancreatitis. Uh, when we do that, uh, I mean, we wait not a couple of weeks or three weeks, but like a month or so in order to go in and kind of debride the tissue. Uh, then you're just going in and scooping out that stuff. It's less bleeding. Uh, they don't have as many uh, fistulas forming. And uh, you're just basically kind of giving them the best chance. What that means is that the patient is going to be sick when they have the pancreatic necrosis and they're going to be sick for a while. So we just have to be patient, we have to support them, we have to improve the nutritional situation, and then eventually go to the operating room in order to kind of clean up and you know, take out that uh, pro-inflammatory kind of you know, uh, collection of dead tissue. Um, so uh, again, in the past, we used to do an anterior approach, which you go in, uh, you kind of try to lift the stomach up, and then you go through the... Uh, uh, momentum and then go through and go to behind the stomach and usually because of the inflammation it's kind of very miserable and everything is stuck and all that stuff. Uh, now uh, what we do is basically do this step up approach which uh, yeah, I'm going to show you what that means. Uh, so this is a cross you know section of the body. Uh, this is supposed to indicate the pancreatic necrosis this is an IR drain that's put in and that's draining all this stuff. This can get upsized uh, uh, by IR up to a point where this tract is matured over here, meaning that once you take this out, it's not gonna collapse. And once that happens, we can you know, take out this drain and then follow this drain in basically to the, necro the necrotic tissue and then kind of debride it that way. This avoids us going through the belly. Technically, the peritoneum is still, you know, a clean area that, you know, because of the necrosis is contained to the retroperitoneum. So we don't have to go through here and, um, you know, kind of contaminate the peritoneum. And all you're doing basically is cleaning up the retroperitoneum from the necrotic tissue. This only kind of uh, is, um, is done realistically if the uh, necrosis is very well organized, obviously. Um, and that's called the step-up approach. And there was a study, the Panther study, basically, that kind of, you know, showed better mortality and hospital stay and lower complication. And that's kind of the approach that we uh, try to use every single time. Um, so when do we do uh, early surgical intervention? Like I said, if there's any suspicion of any ischemic bowel, and again, the colon is a high culprit, if there's any perforation because of, you know, IR or because of whatever reason, or if there's a complication from the IR procedure or no improvement after IR intervention. So if they drain that, uh, you know, fluid uh, or that current necrosis and the patient is still kind of dying, then it's probably a good conversation to have with the family if we want to pursue an OR because most of those patients will not do well and an open necrosectomy will, you know, they have multiple operation, uh, pancreatic fistulas and prolonged drainage. The other reason I want to talk about is also abdominal compartment syndrome, uh, you know, with resuscitation, those will present relatively early and, uh, and those will need decompression basically. And the goal of the decompression is to kind of relieve the compartment syndrome 
but not do anything with the retroperitoneum. So we usually just open the abdomen, let him be, and then unless, again, there's any evidence of, of uh, uh, anything dead. So, uh, you know, what do we do uh, overall, kind of like a less minute of the talk, then we open to questions. Uh, the diagnosis is, again, based on uh, abdominal pain, and uh, and the you know elevated lipase three times higher than usual, uh, and then once you get the diagnosis, then we need to kind of decide how severe the pancreatitis is, and that depends on organ failures, that depends on their vitals, you know, heart rate, respiratory rate, O2 set, blood pressure, and then their labs. You know, they have an elevated lactate, the UN is high, hemoglobin, creatinine. Uh, and then that kind of makes you decide if you want to admit into the ICU based on those labs and based on uh, any organ dysfunction. All of those patients, again, will need IV fluid resuscitation. And, uh, you know, uh, you have to do it based on what you're comfortable with and how you resuscitate all other patients based on, you know, assessing the intravascular volume. Um, and then they need continued repeated reassessment. Uh, of their vitals, of their labs. Again, we talked about, you know, BUN and hemoglobin staying high after 24 hours, those patients will do worse. Um, and then, uh, you know, where are you gonna put them? You're gonna put them in the ICU, uh, you're gonna put them in the IMC or on the floor. Again, that depends on your hospital and that depends on how sick the patient is and how much attention they need from you and from the nurses and from the other staff. There's no need to get a CT scan on everybody unless, you know, they're admitted to the ICU, I think then they have severe pancreatitis and you need to kind of get an idea. The recommendation basically is to try and wait uh, unless you're looking for something specific within the first 24 hours, because by 72 hours, you will gonna pick up if there's any pancreatic necrosis or there's anything funky that you need to address at that point. Uh, no antibiotic just for pancreatitis. Um, remember nutrition, you don't have to kind of start it right away. Uh, and then another thing is that, you know, if, uh, once you hit the mark of 48 hours, uh, you just kind of rethink of your resuscitation strategy, because at that point, if their kidney is still failing, not clear that more volume is going to, you know, help. Uh, uh, so reassess, you know, how much volume they have and how much they, they can uh, tolerate still. Uh, be patient, uh, you know, if they're sick. Um, but they're not getting sicker, then you just need to support them. Uh, again, the caveats is that you've got to make sure that there's nothing dead in their abdomen, that they don't have abdominal compartment syndrome, um, and they don't have anything else that you're missing as far as their septic or uh, visibility shock. And again, always ask for help, uh, IR, surgery, uh, uh, ID. Uh, those are complicated patients with complicated problems. And uh, I think that's it. Thank you. Dr. Abbasai, thank you so much. Sure. See if anybody has any questions. Let's check in the chat as well.